lacking anything. The word of the Lord, please be seated. We are starting a series in the book of Genesis, and uh, it'll be in chapter 37. We're going to look at the life of Joseph, continue it throughout uh, the month of October. Father, we do thank you so much for giving us that glimpse of glory last weekend. And uh, we know that there's all kinds of marvelous things happening in our midst that uh, can only be spiritually discerned. But it's nice once in a while to see them manifest in a visible way so that we can truly experience your presence in a powerful and wonderful way. And Lord, especially we need to experience that in the midst of our trials and the difficulties that we face and the times we are confused and bewildered and we don't understand what's going on. But the scriptures really speak to that and really help us to uh, experience what that means. So we thank you for your word this morning in that regard. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. They say that it's a mistake to underestimate the enemy. Well, if that's true, then we have to give the devil his due. He is still the smartest person in the room, any room, whether it's the faculty meeting of Harvard University or the General, General Assembly of the United Nations or <clears throat> the chambers of the Supreme Court. Satan is so smart that he can deceive the most spiritual people like Adam and Eve. He can defeat the strongest, like Samson. And he can disgrace the wisest, like Solomon. He's so smart, he can turn the most brilliant scientist into a fool. As Scripture says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's why we should never try to match wits with him, because Satan is a chess master, always thinking 50 moves ahead, it's a mistake to underestimate the enemy. But it's a much bigger mistake to underestimate God because he's at least 50,000 years ahead. So no matter what the situation, God is able. No matter what the circumstances, he never fails. And that's especially evident in the life of Joseph. You see, God's plan given to Abraham was that the world would be blessed through his descendants. But in Genesis, God didn't have a lot to work with. Those patriarchs produced some of the most dysfunctional families in the Bible. What a disaster. You're choosing them? For what? For thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Those people made mistakes so serious that we're still suffering the consequences 4,000 years later. And each generation seemed to get worse. Jacob had 12 sons through four different mothers. And it was just one disaster after another. One fine day, two of those sons went out and massacred an entire village. A subtitle for the book of Genesis could be Men Behaving Badly. It's amazing the Bible ever made it out of Genesis because Everything seemed to be going wrong. But 
God was up to something. And he was looking for an opportunity to overcome that evil with good. And Joseph gave him that opportunity. You see, Joseph was not like his older brothers. Genesis chapter 37, verse 2, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. And it says he brought their father a bad report about them. Joseph was offended by his brother's carnal and corrupt behavior. So he filed an official complaint, which is what siblings do all the time to their own peril. Because that broke the code of silence. Don't tell dad. There would be serious consequences for that kind of betrayal. And to make matters worse, we read in verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Maybe he looked something like Liberace or Elton John. We don't know if he was strutting around like a peacock in full display, but this is not good. In Genesis, favoritism is one of the flaws that was passed down through the generations. Jacob's father Isaac loved his older brother Esau more. And it's easy to do. Irvin Lutzer writes, A passive father will always play favorites with a child that doesn't give him any trouble. But favoritism is a felony in family life. It, it incubates resentment in those who are loved less, and it creates great risk for the one who is loved more. They become a target. Verse 4 says, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And then it got worse. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen, to this dream I had, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of this dream and what he had said. Well, as the pampered, favored son, Joseph was lacking in basic survival skills. He had absolutely no street smarts. Even if you have a dream like that, and even if it's true, you don't tell anyone, that's asking for trouble. He should have been like Mary, who, after the angel told her of her role in the incarnation, simply treasured these things in her heart. It never became town gossip down at the market. Don't tell anyone. And they hated him all the more because of his dream. Well, nevertheless, in his teen years, Joseph had a sense of destiny. The sense that his life mattered, that he had an important role to play in God's kingdom. And young people, I hope you have a sense of destiny in your lives a sense of your importance in God's kingdom that cannot be overestimated. You are destined for spiritual greatness. But in Joseph's case, to fulfill a dream like that was extremely unlikely 
because favoritism is not only going to inflate his ego, it's going to ruin his life. Very few can overcome a huge deficit like that. For Joseph to be of any use, he would need to learn humility. And to be honest, more than anything, Joseph needed to be roughed up a bit. Verse 13 says, Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Verse 17, So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham. And when his brothers saw Joseph, they bowed down before him and acknowledged his superiority. Well, not exactly. This young man, is so naive, he doesn't even realize he's walking into a trap. And, and what about his father? Why would his father send him to his doom? Jacob was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Verse 18, But they saw him from a distance. Before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. This was too good to be true. Joseph had been untouchable, protected by the force field of his father's favor, but now that arrogant brat is all alone. It was shark week, and there's going to be a feeding frenzy. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into a cistern. And then they sat down, and they said grace, and they began to eat lunch. Verse 25, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. They talked it over and realized, you know, we don't actually have to kill him. We just have to get rid of him. And we could even make a profit at this. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. And can you see them congratulating themselves on rejecting the greater sin for a much lesser transgression? These guys had a kind heart after all. Their conscience was appeased because they had taken the high road. It's not so bad. We're just trading him for future considerations. It's just one less hog at the trough. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So Joseph was taken by the Mennonites, oh no wait, Midianites, beyond the horizon to Egypt. All they had to do now was to convince their father that Joseph had been the victim of a hungry leopard or something. It's not surprising, with that technicolor coat, predators could see him coming for miles. It was a terrible misfortune, so tragic. Verse 31, Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. 
They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. That's interesting because previously, Jacob had deceived his father, camouflaged in Esau's wardrobe. And now his sons are deceiving him with a piece of Joseph's wardrobe. Interesting how the sins of the fathers are passed down to the sons. Dysfunction is contagious. So the cycle of evil continues to revolve in perpetual motion until someone finally overcomes evil with good. But would Jacob buy it? We need to test the blood, get a DNA sample. Of course, back then they were forensically challenged, and the evidence seemed convincing. Verse 34, Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. It was the end of the world. All hope was gone. Nothing would ever make up for this tragedy. And it's very likely that Jacob blamed himself. I sent him out there. It's possible Jacob also blamed God. Why didn't you protect him? One thing was clear. This, uh, this chosen people thing, it's a lost cause. It's never going to work. I mean, just look at us. We're not a blessing to anybody. There's nothing worth salvaging here. God, you might as well reboot and start over again. Choose someone else. I'm finished. I quit. In morning will I go down to the grave. So their father's tears compounded the cruelty of their deception. But they honored the code. No one said a word. And the conspiracy of silence condemned Jacob to unending grief. Verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So the favored son was now a slave a lost soul with no hope and no future. Can you believe this? This totally messes up everything. How is God going to fulfill his plans when things have gone so horribly wrong? Have you ever wondered that? Maybe this is kind of like your story. Perhaps you had a similar sense of destiny. I wonder how many dreamers that are here today. Have, have you ever felt you were destined for greatness? In a sense, that's part of human nature. We have a lot of dreamers in our society. They line up for auditions at The Voice and American Idol. The Disney doctrine teaches kids from early on that their dreams are going to come true. Well, we're not talking about those kinds of dreams. They're worldly dreams, which are all about us. We're talking about godly dreams, which are about a higher calling. Was there a time in your life when you sensed God's anointing? 
that you were a vital part of his plan for this generation? Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 12, I tell you the truth, anyone, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing and even greater things than these. Really? Wow. Think of the possibilities. Think of your potential. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ. We can really make a difference. We can have a tremendous impact. But then something happened. The enemy always does what's necessary to sabotage our dreams. And he's found a very effective antidote for our idealism. It's a heavy dose of reality. That's when things fell apart through a series of unfortunate events. Maybe it was the same thing, family conflict. Or maybe it was illness or financial obstacles. There was a crushing rejection. There was a fatal attraction. There was fear. There was frustration, failure, fatigue. And you got overwhelmed by this series of unfortunate events. And then the dream died. Here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. Then we'll see what happens to his dream. And when the dream dies, we lower our expectations to half-mast and we begin to grieve. In mourning will I go down to the grave, said Jacob. And the hope dissolved in the acids of cynicism. What now? Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. No one expected that. So the question is, where is God in all of this? How could he just watch and do nothing? He could have sent 12 legions of angels to rescue Joseph. Was God at a loss? Was he just saying, oh no, not that. What do I do now? This is so messed up. Or was it? Well, believe it or not, everything was moving according to plan, a divine plan. You see, God had vetoed the hit on Joseph's life, leaving him only with cuts and bruises and various abrasions to his positive self-image. Joseph was hurt, but he was not harmed. And there's a big difference. A.W. Tozer said it is doubtful that God can greatly use anyone until he has greatly hurt them. But Joseph is such a nice boy. He's kind, he's obedient. Nothing bad should ever happen to him. Well, to be honest, there's really no way around it. It's absolutely necessary when you're dealing with a stubborn, unstable substance like human nature. You don't create a sculpture using fine sandpaper and a dust cloth. You use a hammer and a chisel. 
oh, ouch, that hurts. One day, a misshapen slab of marble was delivered to the studio of Michelangelo. When his apprentice saw it, he asked, what in the world are you going to do with that? Michelangelo said, I'm going to sculpt an angel. But how? And he said, well, it's very simple. I will remove anything that isn't an angel. Maybe that explains some of the blows that we've been getting lately. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. The master is at work, and he's using a hammer and a chisel. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Oh! And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, not lacking anything. I like the result, but I'm not crazy about the process. Ouch! Not so hard. But it's necessary for our spiritual maturity. Without suffering, dreamers don't amount to very much. Joseph would have become a drone in the hive. He needed to be cured of his exaggerated self-esteem. And there was a clinic in Egypt that had the prescription. And so God provided free transportation to get this unemployed teenager to his first real job. It was hammer time. And Satan can't touch this. You know, it's really interesting because after, after verse 36, Joseph isn't mentioned anymore. He kind of disappears. It's like he's forgotten. Because in the next chapter, the spotlight is on Judah, his older brother. No mention of Joseph. Judah, I mean, it's just one shameful event after another. You'd need to take a long shower after you read a chapter like this. We don't need to know this stuff. We want to find out what happened to Joseph. But the story is put on hold. Joseph just disappears from sight. Maybe that's where we are right now. We feel like God has stopped working in our lives. But the enemy hasn't. The world around us just gets worse and worse. It's depressing. God, where are you? What are you up to? Well, we go to chapter 39, and it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Verse 2 says, the Lord was with Joseph. How about that? Joseph has made it to Egypt, where he was sold as a slave, but God is still with him. God has not given up. You see, it doesn't matter how big the mess is, God is still at work, even in a place like Egypt, the most unlikely place filled with idolatry and occultic demon worship. But even there, God is with Joseph in the worst time of his life, and so everything is going according to plan. Now, if this was God's plan, what exactly are we talking about? 
Did God pre-program Joseph's brothers to commit this evil deed? Were they just being maneuvered like chess pieces? Listen up, I need you guys to sell your brother into slavery. Is that how it works? No way. James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. God does not plan for people to sin. That's a violation of his plan. We sin because we are sinners. It's our choice. It's our responsibility. Joseph's brothers were motivated by the free will of their fallen human nature. They didn't have to do this. They wanted to do this, and God let them. Because in his sovereignty, God knew that he could use that sin as leverage to move Joseph in the right direction. Sin is never God's will. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. One man at a funeral of a friend who was killed by a drunk driver said, I guess it's God's will. No! A thousand times no! Most of the things that happen in this world are not God's will. They're the opposite. This world is in rebellion against God. But even sin cannot prevent God from fulfilling his purposes. See, God prefers to work through righteousness. But often, he has to work through our rebellion, and he is able to do so. We all know Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Does that apply to everyone? No, of course not. It's very specific. That happens to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That was Joseph. He had a sense of his purpose in life. He had a relationship with God. And so all things were able to work for his God. That didn't necessarily apply to his brothers, but it applied to him. And that's why God was still with Joseph in the worst time of his life making sure that even the evil and the injustice he suffered would not ruin the plan, but would do the opposite, would eventually overcome evil with good. And the good news is that you have exactly the same God, a God who has started a good work in your life, and he is continuing that work today and next week, and next month. And he will continue it until it's complete. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. So even though right now it may seem kind of hopeless, even though it may look impossible, even though you may think, what a mess, stay tuned. Don't change the channel. Because God is up to something. Something good. And he will not fail. It was a mess, 
But when the dust settled, the dream was not dead. Father, we marvel at your ability to work through the most impossible kinds of situations. Situations that uh, would make us just give up and say, it'll never work. We just can't see any way through this. This is a dead end. This, is, this can't possibly lead me to a place where I could be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's what it looks like. But from your vantage point, you see the end and know that you're still moving us in the right direction. And we just have to be patient. And we just have to wait as your will becomes more and more visible in our lives. So Lord, we just trust you with our circumstances and with the challenges we face right now because we know you are up to something good. You are overcoming evil with good. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.